Hello, and welcome to episode five of the Venture Games podcast. I'm Chris Quaidu, and today I'm thrilled to announce the next guest on my podcast, Phil Sanderson, founder and managing director at Griffin Gaming Partners. How's it going, Phil? Great. It's going great, Chris. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for joining me. So to get started, you know, I would love it if we could just hear more about your background uh, and specifically, you know, the path that led you up to uh, Griffin, but before Griffin. Sure. So let's see. I grew up playing games, um, you know, Apple IIe, Atari, those style, mm-hmm. and then moved to PC. And I, uh, after I went to college, I went to Hamilton College, I moved out to LA to work in investment banking, working at Goldman Sachs, and saw an opportunity to work in technology because so much was happening in tech at the time. So moved up to San Francisco to work for Robertson Stevens. Um, I joined a media group and we were doing a lot of gaming M&A work. I actually worked on an M&A assignment for Sierra Online. And Sierra Online was really the first uh, graphic-based MMO. Um, we sold it to AT&T. That was in 1993. And I've been doing gaming ever since. Uh, I, um, after Robertson, I went to Harvard Business School. And when I left, I really wanted to focus on media, particularly gaming. So I joined a media uh, fund called Walden Venture Capital and um, did a lot of investing there. Gaming was pretty nascent. Mm -hmm. Um, I did some game investing, but a lot of enterprise software investing. I was at Walden for a number of years, almost 10 years, went to IDG Ventures, where I helped start um, their current set of funds and started to do a lot more game investing there and became probably the most active game investor, um, mm-hmm. given the amount of uh, game investments I made um, over, you know, sort of the that period of time from, from um, 2000 to 2018. Um, but there was a there was a, a sea change during that time period, especially in the last five years, where gaming went from 100 million gamers to over 3 billion gamers in a very short amount of time, and it became the largest consumer trend in the world. And it was very clear to me there needed to be a dedicated venture fund focused on gaming, and there really weren't that many, mm-hmm. um, if at all. So you know, I teamed up with Peter Levin and Nick Tuasto from Tree, and we formed Griffin Gaming Partners to really capitalize on this opportunity and provide capital to so many gaming entrepreneurs that needed capital. There was a real mm-hmm. need in the market. You know, you read any prospectus, any business plan, anything, and it's always about, there's a problem in the market, here's how we solve the problem, here's our tech or, or service, and here's the team, and here are the financials. It's sort of all the same, and it started with, there's a big problem, there's not enough money to fund all these great gaming entrepreneurs to produce games for this population that wants to play. So we're really trying to solve that problem. So what do you see as some of the benefits that Griffin or just a gaming specific fund in general can provide that a generalist fund cannot provide? Yeah. So it's interesting because I've worked with a number of different venture firms in the past. I've been on the board of the National Venture Capital Association I run the VC network, which is the largest social network for for, um, venture capitalists. And I've seen so many venture funds. Um, There has been a major trend um, since I've been in venture over the last 25 years to specialize and be a sector focused fund. And there's there's many advantages to your question. All the partners can really help with not only 
identifying the opportunity, doing due diligence, working on it together. But then after you make the investment, all the partners and all the people within the firm can help lend resources to make that company grow. And that's what companies really need. There are other subtle advantages, like if a company were to pivot, um, being able to explain that pivot to the partnership to be able to say, look, this isn't what we invested in, but we believe in the entrepreneur and we want to continue to back the company. Mm -hmm. That's a lot easier when you understand what they do and you understand why they're pivoting. Uh, so it's important to have that sector focus as well. You create a brand around what you do. It's very clear what we do. It's in our name. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and that works. Um, and it has worked so far. We built a, um, you know, what we believe a very strong brand name around our fund um, in a very short amount of time even though people have known us in the marketplace before right. people are saying, you know, Griffin gaming partners is somebody we should talk to. Mm -hmm. So that's significant. And how would you describe Griffin's thesis? So we try to make it in a very uh, concise way. Mm -hmm. um, we focus on investing in game companies in the early and late stages, both in the infrastructure and the content side globally. That's it in a nutshell. Um, now, we're very hands-on with companies. We're very focused on working closely with entrepreneurs. Um, we lend a lot of resources, not just with our experience in helping recruit, but we've got a number of strategic limited partners who have helped our companies and continue to help and co-invest with us. We've done a lot of specific work in IP integration, specifically um, you know, our partner, Peter Levin, who's done mm -hmm. that in the past, Lionsgate and other firms. Um, Nick has done an incredible job being a leader in the... Um, M&A and advisory space in gaming. So lending those resources is a huge advantage. So we bring a lot to the table and it helps when it's, when it's competitive. So you mentioned IP and gaming. You know, this is something that I feel very strongly that intellectual property as a whole in gaming is very valuable, but it's not mm -hmm. necessarily as well valued, if that makes sense. And so what do you think are some of the steps to bridge the gap and sort of unlock the value of the rich intellectual property in gaming? Well, yeah, there's a lot of topics around IP. Generally, I like um, games that have well-known intellectual property in them because it de-risks them. And it mm -hmm. also um, allows you to um, pay for, for customers on the back end perform on a performance basis. So typically you would just advertise on Facebook, Google, elsewhere, and, um, and get these users. There's a you know, retention rate game you play, and then you monetize them over time. In the case of IP, people come to the game naturally because they want to play the IP. So you're not mm -hmm. paying for that consumer upfront. You're paying on the back end in a revenue share, and it's performance-based. So it's a lot better model. And um, certain IPs perform incredibly well in games. That's one piece of it. There's another piece too. You can build up um, an IP out of nowhere. And once it becomes popular, you can then license that IP to, uh, to make TV shows, movies, merchandise, and so forth. Um, and so that's something a lot of companies have done well um, with like The Witcher and, and Rovio Angry Birds and other types of companies. So um, you know, people are, this, this is also a broader theme, which is yeah. how do we consume um, media? Mm -hmm. And what is pop culture today? And these lines are being blurred because while you're playing a game, you can also be watching a concert right. or, or seeing a TV show with your friends, you know, in a social media context that is within the metaverse. 
So, you know, IP is also blending in with games as this market's evolving. Right. Why do you think we haven't seen as many sort of like, you know, blockbuster successes as far as like movies or TV shows that come from gaming IP specifically? That's a good question. Um, you know, when I think about games that are made out of uh, TV shows or, or, or TV shows that are made from games, I always yeah. think about like Warcraft or World of Warcraft and they were, you know, they were okay, mm -hmm. but um, The Witcher did pretty well actually yeah. on, on Netflix. That's probably one of the exceptions. And even then that was a, a pretty good show. It wasn't like the greatest show ever. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think the expectations are really low within Hollywood and the budgets aren't that high for these mm -hmm. types of games. And so they aren't made with the same production values as typical TV shows or movies. That could be one reason. But I'm not I'm not an expert in the in the, uh, sure, sure. In the field of movies or TV, but that is a that is a, an issue. Yeah. And um, look, the, I think the one major exception is Marvel because mm -hmm. Marvel movies, if you look at like the top and DC movies, the top movies of all time, yep. they are comic book movies. They just are like Spider-Man one, two, and three. I mean, right. you look at the, the grosses of those weekend you know, debuts, they blow away everything else. So, uh, but those have high production values yeah. and high budgets. I think if you've got the right IP, you could create a major you know, movie and even some of the best movies of all time. Absolutely. I, I actually tend to agree with you. I hope that that's something that we see in the not too distant future. You know, some of these gaming IPs just getting more attention and, and larger budgets. So you yeah. mentioned as far as the thesis, you know, you basically the, the thesis is to look at infrastructure plays as well as, you know, game studios themselves. Which of these two areas uh, do you see the most potential? Well, it's, um, it's, it's hard to say, you know, there are, there are infrastructure plays like discord that have done incredibly well, mm -hmm. um, and have, uh, you know, reached hundreds of millions of, of users every month, de facto standard created billions of dollars of value. And, you know, I was lucky enough to be an investor in their seed round at my prior firm. Mm -hmm. That's, um, you know, that's a huge value creation. Yeah, you can also invest in a, in a game that has the right team that can capitalize on a very productive CAC to LTV ratio. And once that's proven, you can back up the truck and spend unlimited amounts of, of um, customer acquisition dollars mm -hmm. and really monetize them over time and create billions of dollars of value there. So uh both infrastructure and content have massive opportunities, which is why we focus on both. Right. And, you know, we continue to see just incredible companies all the time, all the time. So what do you say to, you know, sort of whether it's general, generalist investors or just people who are more skeptical on the gaming space and gaming investing, you know, when they say things like, you know, investing in a studio is kind of like buying a lottery ticket. You know, there's no way to predict the success of a game. Uh, what do you say to those uh, sorts of lines of thought? Um, well, first, let me, I, I just want to take one step back before sure. I answer because it's a great question, but it, mm -hmm. but talking about generalists and specialists, I remember um, one board meeting that, that I had and we had a, a board dinner the night before. This mm -hmm. is for Phoenix Labs in Vancouver. And um, the next morning, 
we started the board meeting and the CEO said, just want to say that we spoke about it last night after we had all gotten together for dinner. Mm -hmm. And um, we love the fact that our discussions were about D&D, Dune, and comic books. <laughs> and he said, I know we've chosen the right board when that's our topics of conversation. Right. And I think, you know, you really, you, there, there can be generalists who move around in different subsectors within mm -hmm. venture, but unless you've lived gaming your entire life, your entire network is about gaming. It's hard to fake that, right? right? You, just, you just really need to live and breathe and be of, by, and for the culture, as uh, my partner Peter likes to say. Yeah. And that really shows itself to entrepreneurs and they understand that, okay, this is a person that I want to work with to be on my board, to be a partner, to help me grow the business and to be there through thick and thin. And, um, and that's why I think it's really important to have that specialization in any field within venture. Okay, but to your question, you know, is gaming a lottery ticket? I think um, there is a piece of gaming, which is, and this really emanated from what I call the King Zynga effect, mm -hmm. because when King and Zynga went public, the expectations were super high and they failed to meet the expectations yeah. and they dropped in the public markets. Now they rebounded and they've done incredibly well, obviously, yeah. but that really sent a ripple through the market. And when people don't understand gaming and they, they haven't lived it in their entire lives, they kind of look at it as, oh, it's like going to Sundance and you, you finance an independent film and who knows whether it's going to be successful or you buy right. a lottery ticket. You know, that, that, that may be the case with some hyper casual or casual game companies. Rovio had Angry Birds. That was like their 35th game. They were throwing spaghetti on the wall and seeing what stick. Yeah. And actually Candy Crush was, you know, a bit of an experiment too. Mm -hmm. And so you can get lucky with those types of things. That's not really the business that we're in you know, we're looking at, at metrics, big data around um, the companies when they launch in, in adjacent markets to the US and Europe, like in Canada, New Zealand, um, Australia, they're English speaking. You could really see with a large sample set what their ARP DAOs, average revenue per daily active yep. user, what their retention rates are. We know what those metrics should be, as well as CAC to LTV ratios for different style of games. We compare them and if they, have hit those metrics early on, then we'll back them. And we know that could be a top 20 game overall. Right. Um, so a big part of our business is just very data-driven. It's not luck. Um, and the due diligence we do on these companies is so intense that you know, we have a really good sense of the people and the product before we go in. Um, so, you know, Actually, I don't mind investors having that viewpoint because it just means less competition in our, in our business. Um, so, but there is that, you know, there is that, uh, that question that comes up every once in a while. And, you know, I think the only thing that the ultimate answer are results. Mm -hmm. So, so you mentioned D and D, which for those yeah. who don't know is, is Dungeons and Dragons. You know, I know you're a big fan. So just generally, you know, shifting gears slightly away from video games for a second, but when you think about the market for like RPG games, like D and D or just tabletop games in general, do you think this is a pretty attractive uh, area that merits investment attention? Uh, it's interesting. You know, I think on the role-playing side, there's, there are definitely games that have done incredibly well. I'm playing Baldur's Gate 3 now. Um, and, you know, there, there are sort of uh, other mobile games in the role-playing side that have, that have done well. Um, tabletop is coming back. You know, 
hardware or games that have a physical component are a little challenging in the sense you've got bill of materials you need to pay for. Um, you've got to use a retail channel, mm -hmm. physical channel in many senses, although that is switching more to online. So there are some constraints around margin, but you know, as that market evolves, we're going to monitor, we have been monitoring it very closely to see if yep. there's opportunities to do, you know, or even hybrid, right? Like we've seen these role-playing games where that are board games, but they have um, an online component to them. And I think that could be very interesting as well because people do like a physical um, component in many senses. Yeah. Although that's starting to change with the NFT market too. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're definitely going to talk about that um, a little bit later. So what are some of the other games that you're playing today? You know, as you mentioned before, you know, the, the folks at Griffin are not playing around, no pun intended, you know, we're actually gamers. And so what are you playing yeah. these days? Well, I play a lot of, my, of our portfolio company games. Mm -hmm. um, I am playing Coin Master right now, mostly for competitive intelligence. I've been playing Golf Clash um, because it's blowing up and I like to you know, play these games that are doing well. I do like to play golf too. That's kind of nice. Um, and I have been um, trying to practice with, um, with uh, uh, Mario Kart. I got my new <laughs> Mario Kart controller from the team for my yeah. birthday, it was amazing. And so I've, I'm dedicated to practicing so I could beat some of the 20 year olds on our team. <laughs> so as you, you're part of this, we, we get together on yeah. Fridays for our, our team get togethers and we play, we, we talk around the water cooler for a while and then we play Mario Kart. And um, I don't think it's a hand-eye coordination thing. I just think it's, it's the 10,000 hours thing because I haven't put that many hours into mm -hmm. Mario Kart yet. Sure. <laughs> but I played it a lot. Yeah, no, we, we have some competitive folks uh, internally for sure. Um, so you mentioned earlier, you know, Griffin isn't just a domestic fund. We, we look at investments all across the globe. And so what are some of the geographies that you think are most interesting in the near term? And then as you look, you know, several years out, where do you think there are going to be other interesting opportunities? Sure. Okay, well, in the near term, I think um, places like Israel are very interesting. You know, in terms of venture in general, um, if it was a U.S. state, it would be the third most active area for investment by, by VCs mm -hmm. um, behind California and New York. Um, and so there's so much activity there. We've made a number of investments in Israel. I think Turkey is another place that has been very vibrant. Um, for investment and uh, we've made investments there. We'll continue to do more in Eastern Europe in general. There's a lot of tech talent and companies that are spinning out. Um, so outside of the US, I'd say, you know, those areas are, are very interesting. Emerging would be uh, India for sure. And, um, and probably, you know, Middle East, Northern Africa, the MENA area mm -hmm. is something that we're really monitoring closely. I think, you know, there's so much happening in, in China and Asia. We don't have a major presence there. We've got a number of partners that we work with and we're looking at a number of investments, mm -hmm. but you know, it's, uh, it's, it's more of a specialized area and the games tend to be very different. So it's one that we're, um, you know, while we're looking at very closely, we'll, we'll do something with a local partner, you know, one of ours or some others. Yeah. So, you know, as you mentioned before, you've been investing in, in the sector, you know, basically for, for your whole career, but it's been, it's becoming increasingly hot, right? So there's a lot of new money flowing into the sector that probably wasn't there before. So just generally, how do you think about valuations within the sector? 
I think about it in two ways. One, um, the valuations have gone, have been incredibly high for a number of companies that have exited and they're continuing to grow. And I, I think much of that is justified given their growth rate, given their margins and given the opportunity they're going after. So um, I love to see that. And it really shows, I mean, there was a period of time where there are only a handful of companies in gaming that sold for more than $200 million. Mm -hmm. And it was probably pre 2012 or 13. This is very rare to have exits. Now you have huge exits in the market like um, you know, Unity and Roblox and, and uh, PUBG. All those are valued at over $25 billion up to $40 billion. Um, and there's many, many, many others. Mm -hmm. In terms of the private markets, it's really bifurcated. Um, there are some companies that I think are not necessarily overvalued, but they're getting credit for what they can do in the next two to three years in evaluation today. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's a little bit of a harder proposition. We have stood our ground and, you know, not, um, not chosen to chase higher valuations in certain cases. Um, I would say in many cases, we're not the highest valuation when we offer a term sheet, but because mm -hmm. of the value that we bring, um, and entrepreneurs do choose to work with us, which is good. Um, and we try to give a valuation that we think is, is fair and reasonable for the time period, given the risk return ratio that we see right. based on years of, of uh, investing in, in processes. So um, there there's certainly some valuations that make a lot of sense. And there's others that don't that we've had to just say, you know, it's, um, it's not something we're going to pursue. Right. So another side effect of gaming becoming more mainstream is just the typical demographic of a gamer, you know, is actually not what most people think it is. You know, it's actually quite balanced by gender, you know, and, and, and I think the average age would probably surprise a lot of people and some other things. When you think about the potential for more females entering uh, gaming, um, I guess, what, what do you think about the impacts on gaming investments just of this sort of longer term trend? I, I you know, I've seen statistics that show that more women play mobile games and spend more money than men. Mm -hmm. um, but I haven't really seen games that are oriented to women as much. I mean, look, women play all, all video games, yep. but there are certain games that are very um, female dominated, like um, covet fashion or design home or things like that. But the typical game that has appealed to women in the past has been like Candy Crush, which is sort of cartoony in nature and so forth. So um, we've been actively looking for companies that have content and a focus towards this demographic. Um, and there are other demographics that are emerging as well. Yep. The female demographic is one that is, um, you know, um, is ripe for opportunity to invest. So uh, we've made investments in that area. And um, we're going to continue to, you know, Tactile Games is one of those companies where we invested, mm -hmm. which has a game called Lily's Garden. And, you know, it's a, it's a story-driven game that also has a match-three component um, to it. And, um, you know, the storyline is very oriented towards uh, women, and it's done incredibly well in that sector. So... You know, my gaming background, you know, I was, I was always much more of a competitive than a casual gamer. As the landscape continues to evolve, do you see more competitive games uh, appealing to women? Or do you think more females will enter the competitive scene? Or do you think it will remain mostly casual gaming? No, I definitely think women will, will um, 
you know, enter that, the, the, you know, you could call hardcore gaming yeah. or, or, um, you know, the PC style games and so forth. I've seen a number of commercials for League of Legends targeting, you know, female gamers. They've identified that sector as well as a growth area and they're advertising to them. And there's no reason why they wouldn't want to play these games. There's already, you know, uh, a pretty large component, but it, there's area to grow for sure. And um, yep, I can see that, um, that area of growth as well in not just the casual side, but the mid-core and hardcore, you know, gaming. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned NFTs uh, earlier, you know, we yeah. internally have been sort of, you know, looking at this, this game called NBA Top Shot a lot, which, you know, a few people on the team uh, are playing around with. So when you think of these, you know, so-called NFTs, and we don't have to get, you know, super into detail as far as what that means, uh, or just other blockchain applications within gaming, are you pretty bullish on these applications or not so much? I'm very bullish. And the reason being, um, the, collect the collectible markets is very interesting. And I think that uh, there's no reason why um, these types of digital collectibles can't be successful in areas of, of sport and art, but also in real estate. But the, the interesting element is gaming because you may say, I've got all these areas, all these NFTs within Nintendo of Zelda, but I don't have Master Sword mm -hmm. and I want it. So you may go out and buy that. But if you have that sword, you may be able to use it in different video games. Um, and it may have different attributes in different video games, but you own it, you can show it, it's got value, you can trade it, it can appreciate in value, but you can also use it mm -hmm. in different games. And if you play a game and you build up a character over time, um, wouldn't it be nice if you could, uh, you know, sell items or use certain items from that game in another game, that can happen with the blockchain. Um, it's probably going to happen within one publisher's universe first. It's sort of like Super Smash Bros within Nintendo. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got all these different characters. They all have similar attributes, but you can play them from other games. Wouldn't it be great if you could, you know, have a character and bring it into that world of Super Smash Bros and play against other people and it's normalized right. as attributes that kind of work. This can all happen on the blockchain. And so we're really excited about the prospects for gaming mm -hmm. in blockchain. Another area that's just been really hot and probably one of the biggest buzzwords in gaming is this whole metaverse concept. So what mm -hmm. do you think about the metaverse concept? You know, if you'd like, you know, feel free to sort of just describe what you, you feel it means. Um, yeah. And do you think it's as promising as sort of, you know, the, the attention it gets would suggest? Um, I do because right now people spend a lot of time in social networks like Instagram and Snapchat and, and Facebook and others, mm -hmm. but they also spend a lot of time within game environments like Fortnite and Roblox. So the question is, if you're a social network like Facebook, are you then going to introduce gaming so you can spend all your time in the social and gaming, or are you going to you're going to take a game like Fortnite and introduce a social network to that. And so you can spend all your time in gaming and social, which one will be more successful. I think the latter, I think the Fortnite introducing social network is so powerful mm -hmm. because people just want to spend their time in games and use that as their social outlet in many senses. So introducing a social network on top of a metaverse style concept like Fortnite can be so powerful. The ready player one example of the Oasis will happen at one point. 
and I don't know if they'll do that dystopian, but you know, having the ability to, um, I just read Ready Player Two, which is a great book. I like that as well. Um, and uh, so having a place where you can go and hang out with your friends and wander around and consume media and use that as your social network is the killer app. And only a few companies have created that metaverse, that environment yet. There'll be many more, but I think it starts with the game environment and branches out into other forms of media like music and television and social networking beyond that. And that's sort of where it, where it uh, expands. Mm -hmm. So as people are spending more and more time in games and just as the social and gaming aspects, you know, continue to blend together, you know, there's the thought that this, you know, sort of overhang of a moderation issue, uh, you know, which has been present in gaming, you know, basically forever, you know, is going to increasingly be a topic of conversation. And so how do you think about moderation within gaming generally, you know, especially when you have some nuances such as anonymity and, you know, real-time voice chat and all those things? Mm -hmm. Well, I think there's, um, there's different ways to go about this. There's the, sort of the regulation side. There's the, um, the companies who have their own internal policies and curators. There's self-policing from users and there's third parties offering these services. We're actually talking to a company um, now called GGWP, mm -hmm. which is doing exactly this, right? And um, I think it was a wake up call to Discord after some of the press they got that they really need to do some um, you know, curation. Uh, and the government is also starting to look at this closely because it's another, you know, it's, a, it's an FCC issue. So, uh, but I also think, you know, after things like Gamergate and others, uh, other topics that have come up and major issues, people start to think about it and say, we need to be more responsible. Now, um, communication mirrors society. So you can blame society, but ultimately you have to, you know, have some types of controls. Right. So it, it needs to be addressed. And I think it's a constant challenge and it'll be, all those four buckets I mentioned, I think are sort of trying to figure it out. And, and I think people want to figure it out. So there will be solutions. Mm -hmm. So to be fully immersed, you know, sort of in, in gaming and, and achieve some of these metaverse concepts, you know, some people think virtual reality or augmented reality will become uh, important components. Uh, mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, I think some of the more specialized investors are a bit more careful when they think about, virtual reality and augmented reality, uh, the potential and the timing and, and actually making investments. And so how do you think about, you know, VR, AR in general, the potential and the timing, if you have any sort of insight? So, um, well, in terms of timing, I, when I was at Robertson Stevens, I worked on some, some fundraisings for VR companies in 1993. And in many mm -hmm. senses, the companies are kind of the same as today. So, you know, they've advanced, but we still have a ways to go, honestly. Right. Um, you know, the Quest 2 is, is pretty damn good. Mm -hmm. um, but I also find myself not going to it as my go-to platform either after I've done it a few times. Um, you know, and so that's an issue. As an investor, yeah, they've sold a few million. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's great, but there needs to be, you know, enough critical mass of games where you say, I'm going to play this and you call your friend and they get on at the same time because they have a device as well. So that you right. need like 20 or 30 million units out there. Yeah. Um, 
And so when is that? I don't know. Like people have been saying VR is going to be big in the next three to five years. They've been saying that for 20 years. So yeah. I can say three to five years. <laughs> <laughs> um, and AR is interesting. You know, um, Pokemon Go is a, the, the great example of it. Yeah. But there are too many examples that have been very effective. So I think it probably has to be something IP driven. Mm-hmm. You know, Niantic has done a great job in the area. But boy, it's been hard for companies to succeed. Um, meanwhile, you've got, you know, really inexpensive game consoles that are so unbelievable, like the PS5. And, you know, you could play Call of Duty and buy it for 40 bucks. It's like, it's, that's a competition. It's yeah. hard to, it's hard to beat. So, Absolutely. you know, I don't know, you need, there needs to be some subsidization or something that gets VR off the ground, I believe, because it's just still chugging along. Mm-hmm. And do you envision a, one of the larger companies to be the big winner or I guess the biggest winner because there likely will be multiple big winners or do you think there's going to be another company that's you know sort of unforeseen as of now that's going to come in and uh, and make waves in the space and for VR yeah 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 um well Sony's got a pretty good lead full disclosure you know we work with them so but um I think uh you know they're they're um their approach has been probably ahead of most others. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can see some of the big incumbents, again, to my point about subsidizing the space. Right. I can see Microsoft, Google, others, you know, Facebook really spending, and, and to the extent they've sort of already have subsidized the space. Yeah. They put so much money into it. So I think um, those are all players that are going to have a major toehold in this market. It's hard for a small independent company to try to compete right now. Yeah. Okay. So similar to uh, you know AR and VR, esports is another area that you know got a ton of attention um, and you know got a, a ton of in- investment attention as well. Um, but you know, some could argue that it hasn't really played out the way it was expected to initially or or with the pace you know and COVID has certainly slowed it down with the lack of in-person events and so how do you see the esports landscape evolving and do you think esports is an interesting area for investment in the near term or potentially down the line well um i think esport teams have gotten a lot of investment from um traditional sports teams because mm-hmm. You know, I read in Rolling Stone that more millennials watch esports than traditional sports. So yeah. they realize their sports are aging out. And they need to have a to- they need to work with these teams and figure out how they integrate into their own strategy. So that really drove a lot of investment. Um, but yeah, it's hard to monetize. It's hard to figure out how to make money with those teams, and it's a long investment cycle. So it's probably not a venture investment. I think mm-hmm. there's venture investing opportunities in and around esports, streaming for one. Um, working with influencers and streamers within these streaming platforms. We've made some investments that um, are sort of in and around this esports area. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's an opportunity to invest in teams per se, but many of the tools, systems, and content companies um, are very interesting, you know, around esports. We've made several investments that would be considered esports yeah. while not investing in teams. And do you think the esports economy uh, longer term, you know, especially given there are more esports viewers than sports viewers, will ever exceed the economy for traditional sports, or do you think that's just way out there? 
It's hard to say, but I would say, given that more millennials are watching esports, when those millennials get older, mm-hmm. and you know, there's going to be a, a change. So, yeah, I mean, more people watched the League of Legends final than NBA finals by orders of magnitude. So, I think it's just a matter of time, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, and then the last sort of like you know super hot buzzy area <laughs> that I'd like to hear your thoughts on is just like cloud gaming. You know, we've seen some some news recently in the cloud gaming space, but how do you think of that uh, landscape sort of evolving going forward? Yeah, I, I'd like it to advance faster than it has. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- there's some major technological challenges that are involved. And also some content challenges. You know, some of the companies like Google have not been used to paying for content. And many of the large platforms that launch, um, like Sony with Spider-Man and Microsoft with Halo and others, like you, you need to own major pieces of content to get things off the ground or have such a major library that you, you have to go there or the pricing needs to be right. It has not been figured out. Mm-hmm. I think it's been, it's been, handled from a technology standpoint, but not from a business model standpoint. And you kind of need, need all, all of mm-hmm. it to work. So one of your interests outside of gaming is music. And mm-hmm. you were actually an early investor in Pandora. And so this question is kind of selfish and for me, but I would love to hear the story of sort of how that, uh, how that investment came to be. Yeah, Pandora was a... Um... There's an interesting company that um, started at Savage Beast mm-hmm. and they created a music genome to track all the companies. And, and effectively, they were a business to business company that licensed their technology in Best Buys. Um, and AOL was, a, was an early uh, customer. But you go into a Best Buy, put on some headphones and say, you know, I like this song. What other songs like it that I should buy in this store? Mm-hmm. And they, um, my partner, Larry Marcus at Walden, who was on the board, really had the foresight to say, this should be a consumer play. Let's give it away. And um, we brought in Joe Kennedy from Saturn Cars, who's a consumer um, expert as a CEO, worked really closely with Tim Westergren, the founder. And um, you know they were off to the races. And it's really exciting to see a company go from you know, its seed investment stage all the way to unicorn status. Mm-hmm. I, I've, involved with a few other companies i invested in triller that um hit that status and discord as a first seed investor there and it's just it's so exciting to see these entrepreneurs win through thick and thin it was not an easy road to pandora i mean it was rough sledding Mm -hmm. for a number of years and you would have never known at the at certain times that they would succeed but they really cracked the code on um music licensing and what the consumers wanted and so forth and uh became a big success so the music industry has been challenged for a long time. And, you know, to be fair, I know this isn't, you know, it's not Griffin music partners, but, you know, I'm sure you have some thoughts on the space. And so how do you see just like, you know, generally the music space evolving going forward? Well, look, music and gaming are merging. I think a lot of these, um, you know, new media companies and um, products are becoming one. You can watch, you know, Travis Scott within Fortnite right? Uh, as you did with Marshmallow and Diplo and others. And people are just, you know, we've invested in a company called Wave, mm-hmm. which is, you know, they create these virtual experiences where you, on, on wave.watch where you can watch an artist perform. They did this 
for the weekend on TikTok. They just did Alice in Wonderland a few weeks ago um, on their own site, and you can watch it in any on any on your phone, on iPad, and on a PC, and feel like you're at a concert experience in a game-like setting. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there's a lot of interesting applications in gaming for music, and so we're exploring a lot of those. So just on the virtual concert uh, concept itself, what are some of the things that you want to see going forward to really make these experiences you know, as, as immersive as possible? Well, I mean, I've got my own thoughts or vision, but wouldn't it be great if you were at Coachella, say, and there are 200,000 people watching an artist perform, but that artist had, or DJ, um, has a motion capture suit on and with an IMAX screen above her or him, and you've got 20 million people watching from their phones, the exact thing that you can look up and see that, uh, that DJ performing, like that's, that, and that interaction where, and, and Wave does this, where you can, you can vote on what you want the artist to do next, what song you wanna play mm-hmm. next, that artist can give a shout out to you and be interactive with you so you can feel like you're part of the experience. Um, doing that is incredibly significant to get fan engagement either on-site or off-site because wouldn't it be, I mean, I, I want to go to Tomorrowland, but it's in Belgium. It's so hard. But if I could like feel like I'm at the experience live in a streaming event with a with seeing the avatar uh, as well as, you know, the actual artist below and mm-hmm. doing all these really cool things, like that's the next generation of a live experience. So they'll, they'll mend together. There will be live experiences again. It'll be a little while. And, um, but this, this new age of interactive experiences that we're seeing from Wave is sort of on the cutting edge. Mm-hmm. Another one of your interests outside of uh, gaming is, is actually ultra marathoning. I know you've, you've run some extremely long distances and, so, and that's definitely not for me, but how, how did you get into that? Um, and what are some of the longest races that you've run? I, I do think you can do a hundred mile race, Chris. I, <laughs> I believe in you. I appreciate the confidence. <laughs> Yeah, so I've run um, about 100 ultra marathons. It's any race longer than a marathon. Mm-hmm. In my life, I've done 22 100-mile races and one 240-mile race. Jeez. Um, <laughs> and, I, you know, these races are, by the way, like one, like Leadville is 100 miles at 10 to 11,000 feet average elevation. Wow. And Western states, sometimes the first 20-plus miles is on snow you know, and it gets to 117 degrees. So the, the, the conditions are super extreme. I think, you know, what drives me is I just love um, setting a goal mm-hmm. and achieving it. And one of, the, one of the hardest things I do is I set a quota for myself and I want to run 10 miles a day. And I do, <laughs> I, I have 70 miles a week. And it's, it's really hard because, you know, we, we're all busy right now. And we could have a full day oh. and I, I can be like 11 at night and I'll say, I got to run 10 miles today. Otherwise I got to do another day that's funny. <laughs> and so I'll get on my treadmill for an hour and 40 minutes. Fortunately, we're living in the golden age of television. I just like, <laughs> <laughs> which is amazing. But um, it's, uh, it keeps me honest and healthy. And, um, you know, there are a lot of lessons. I actually did a a TEDx talk on hacking an ultra marathon, how it relates to being a um, being an entrepreneur, and so I, I liken uh, liken them to being an entrepreneur as well. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. What are you watching these days? Anything interesting? Um, I'm rewatching Dexter. Uh, 
let's see, I'm watching, uh, I just finished Shameless, um, which is, I guess they're coming out with new episodes. They're mm-hmm. coming out with another two seasons of Dexter. So that's why I'm kind yeah. of rewatching it. Um, Cause this is an incredible show and I'm, I'm finishing uh, billions as well. So there's a lot of showtime stuff just happens to be that way, but I've watched, I mean, everything you can think of because mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time on my treadmill. <laughs> it's either, it's either TV shows or live sports. Yeah. But yeah. So, so, you know, sort of as a concluding question, right. Griffin is still in it's, it's early innings. You know, there have been some nice early successes, but just as you look into the future, you know, how do you see Griffin growing going forward? And what are some of the things that you would love to see, you know, to look back and, and say that Griffin was a huge success? Yeah, so, um, you know, if you look on our website, we've invested in a lot of, you know, big companies, um, you know, companies like uh, Skills and Discord and, and AppLovin. I would love to be able to, um, you know, just, it's all about the entrepreneur and, and their appreciation for what we've done. They're our customer. And um, when they give a, a, a quote or something that says, you know, we couldn't have done it without Griffin Gaming Partners, or they were a critical part of our success. That really sort of says it all. Mm-hmm. And um, I love, I, I would love them to uh, be able to do that. And, it, and some have done that in the past. Uh, and then we've also invested in some very early companies that, you know, um, are just pure concept, but mm-hmm. it's an incredible team that has been proven before. They're going after market we love. And seeing those companies go from that stage all the way to exit, you know, it's just an incredible experience. It's one of the things I love about our business. We work with bright, motivated entrepreneurs all the time. And we just want to give them the, the, the tools and resources to help them grow in any way we can. And it's just so exciting to see them, to see them win. They don't always win. And that's, that's a hard part of our business, but it's such a dynamic industry we're in, uh, not just gaming, but also venture capital. I'm just, I, every day, I feel like I'm so lucky to be doing what we're doing because it's not really work when you just love what you do. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds like a very exciting future uh, ahead of Griffin. And so thanks for taking the time, Phil. Absolutely. Thanks Mm -hmm. so much, Chris.